Staying sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Every Democrat that I've worked with for about 10 years now has uh, agreed to funding for barriers slash walls on Obama's watch, on, on Bush's watch, and all of a sudden it's a bad thing on Trump's watch. Not one single time, George, has Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer put a counteroffer on the table oh. except a dollar. Nancy Pelosi said a dollar. That's not serious. We all know that. When people start coming back and saying, we tried to get across, but we couldn't, or even in the news, it starts getting out that there's a, a border uh, uh, wall and, and other measures in place to keep people from crossing, it'll discourage them from coming. Governor Northam is trying to get support from lawmakers to make big changes on gun control. Some of the ideas include universal background checks, a ban on assault weapons, and also bringing back to the table Virginia's one handgun a month law. We had a great conversation. We were talking about uh, Israel and securing Israel and lots of other things. And it was a great conversation. I'm not keeping anything under wraps. I couldn't care less. And now, Stacey Washington. President Trump says he couldn't care less, but I got to say, I can. I care a lot. And I'm so glad to be with you today. Happy Monday. Uh, you know, you can get a little poor in spirit and discouraged, but I've got the remedy for that. There's a lot going on in our news world, uh, in our culture, in our political realm. And so we're going to talk about all of that today. We're going to be digging into a number of topics. We're going to speak first off next segment. We'll have Phil Kirpin, frequent guest of the program. He comes to us from American Commitment, where he's the president. He's going to come on and talk to us about foreign price controls. And we are also going to talk about uh, newly elected governor, DeSantis down in Florida firing Broward Sheriff Scott Israel because of his dereliction of duty surrounding the Parkland shooting massacre. We're going to listen to a, a little bit of audio from this is fascinating. Uh, this news story about a woman. She's young. She's alone. It's before 6 a.m. And an assailant shows her a firearm and then begins to assault her and she fights back. Wounding him, which ends up with, well, I'm not going to tell the whole story. You'll have to wait to find out what happened. But it's, it's a good girl with a gun story. I love that starting off the new year. Not because of the demise of the bad guy, but because it's someone who's innocent defending herself, as is our right. And the Constitution guarantees that. So we'll talk about that as well. We have our daily confession. And we're also going to dig into 8,482 child bride requests. You're probably thinking, where are you getting this from? Like, this has to be fake news. It's not fake news. It's real. Uh, 8,000 plus child bride requests the State Department approved for the child bride or the 40 or 50-year-old plus husband to come into the country to be with their spouse, who is, in by our legal definitions, a child. Again, third world nonsense. We'll talk about that as well. Uh, I don't want any discouragement I'll say it again. I don't want any discouragement. I understand the nature of the news that we often get into on this program it makes it so that people just feel it's like, wow, so that's going on in our country. Well, wickedness has always been present and it will always there will always be wicked people around and sin present until our Lord returns. So the idea that we're to be bogged down by it. No, we're to be spurred on to action. And that brings us to our daily confession today. And I am so excited about this. I needed it. Uh, and that's what made me think that someone in the listening audience might need it. And so let's get into it. 
our daily confession today is about fasting and breaking the strongholds. And this is for personal strongholds. It's also for strongholds in the culture. And you might be thinking, well, I mean, strongholds in the culture, what can you, we can do a ton. I'll cut you off right there. We can do a ton. In fact, it is our lack of fasting and prayer that makes us unable to impact the culture. And when we see so many things going wrong and so many opportunities for justice to be meted out and for it not to be happening, that tells us we have a problem that we need to address with what God has given us, the tools God has given us. And one of those is fasting. So first, let's go to the scripture. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. That's Matthew 5, 6. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body yearns for you in a dry and weary land without water. Psalm 63, 1. And finally, what the wicked dreads will overtake him, but the desire of the righteous shall be granted. One more time on that one. It's good. What the wicked dreads will overtake him, but the desire of the righteous shall be granted. Proverbs 10, 24. So this is amazing to me that we have these scriptures that tell us how we can be encouraged, how we can be lifted up. And instead of us accessing them and then using them to, to run on and get the thing done, we're kind of like, well... I don't know. It just doesn't feel like we can do anything about this problem. Yes, we can. We can do something about it by relying on God. So let's get into just, I have a couple more for you. Come all of you who thirst, come to the waters and you without money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. That's Isaiah 55, one. And Jeremiah 31, 25 says, for I will refresh the weary soul and replenish all who are weak. So what exactly does adding fasting to prayer do? Well, according to Andrew Murray, fasting helps express, deepen, and confirm the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice anything, even ourselves, to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God. Now, fasting is an invitation. We are not required to fast, but it is mentioned often in the Bible, sometimes by Jesus Christ himself, where he talks about, in Matthew, when you fast, your father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. And that's Matthew 6, 17 through 18. Now, we want to see more of God's kingdom expressed in and through our lives and circumstances. We want to see our spiritual capacity enlarge. We want to encounter more of God's heart, which, of course, leads to more experiencing more of his blessings. And, and I mean, obviously, we can choose to fast. We can choose not to fast. But it's for those who are hungry for more. And fasting is a paradox. When we fast, our bodies are weak and hungry, but our hearts become tender and more sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And I want to make another point. Sometimes it's fasting social media. Sometimes it's fasting television. And I say that because I felt led on numerous occasions to fast television. It seems like I'm always finding something new to watch or sitting down and watching a show and I'll fast it. And at first, it's almost as bad as the physical hunger that you experience when you're fasting food, because you're literally, all you can think about is, well, what am I supposed to do now? Because I'm, I'm fasting TV. It shows us how much we've come to give an outsized place to something, whether it's you know, TV or social media, it just shows us where we are spiritually. And so I'm not telling you that you have to fast TV or social media. I'm just bringing those two up as examples of things that you might feel like, I probably need to give this up for a week or two, or, or, you know, I need to fast this once a week. It's, there's so many different ways to do it. Now, fasting is obviously a paradox because our bodies are weak and hunger, hungry, but our, 
Our hearts are tender and more sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, which is what we want. We can hear from God. And as we become weaker in our flesh because of the lack of food, it makes us more receptive to hearing from him. So it's not about starving ourselves. It's about praying and lifting up our concerns to God while we're in the fast. Now, fasting is also a grace because we can't do it on our own. If you just leave it up to me and tell me I'm not eating anything for three days, my flesh is going to rear up and be like, yeah, we're eating. There's no way we're skipping meals. But if I'm doing it through the grace of God, I can fast for long periods of time. And it, it, you build it up. So you don't start off fasting 40 days, no food. You, 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 that's not where you begin, but you can get there. Now, I've never been there for 40 days, but I have been able to fast for long periods of time, certain foods like no sugar. Um, I've also been able to do no meat, which I thought that was just not going to, I, I just couldn't didn't think I could do it, but I was able to do it for, uh, for a very long time. And you might say, well, that's just being a vegetarian. What's so big about that? Well, it, it's, uh, it's, it's not a big deal for people who love vegetables and only want to eat those. But if you love meat and you want to eat, you know, ribs and chicken and et cetera, et cetera, you're, it's not going to be cool. Now, there are seven types of biblical fasting, and I'm just going to run through these really quickly. And what I'm encouraging you to do is in the face of discouragement, in the face of a lot of news that is bad, in the face of watching, you know, a kind of it's like a slow slash fast cultural degradation that we're experiencing. It's almost like we're seeing it in slow motion. I mean, don't you think like sometimes when you're watching the previews for, uh, let's say you're on Amazon, this happens to us sometimes. We'll, we'll go on Amazon. We'll see a movie we've never seen. We're sitting down together. We're going to, you know, let's watch a movie together and we'll pull up the preview and we're just all like, we're silent. Like, what did we just, the preview? Cause you know, the preview is supposed to be rated G. They're supposed to keep all that stuff out. Or you turn something on that's in Amazon Prime and you put, you know, put it on and the 10 minutes in, they're flashing pornography and things like that. It's, it's crazy what we're seeing as acceptable. There's also the proliferation of people who, they're professional liars. They're everywhere, lying all the time. And you see them and you hear them and you, you know that they're lying, but you also recognize that there are millions of people who are listening to that and accepting it as the truth. These types of things that sometimes, you know, you go into the church house and there's just like not, hardly anyone's there. And you're thinking, well, what are they doing on Sunday? What are people doing on Sunday besides going into the house of the Lord or meeting people who've never been to church before? This was not the way it was when in my 20s, uh, it, you know, in my, in my teen years. I, I didn't know anybody who'd never been to church. I think I, the first time I met an atheist is when I went to college and they weren't really an atheist because their parents were Christian. So they'd grown up in church. This is something that we can, we can bring God's kingdom to earth. We're always praying your will be done in, on earth as it is in heaven. We can bring that about by supercharging our prayers with fasting. So here are the seven types. Um, fasting to experience a greater measure of the power of God in personal ministry. Fasting for direction. So you're not sure what you should do in a certain situation. You can fast and God will, he will answer. Fasting for the fulfillment of God's promises. Fasting to stop a crisis. This has been done many times in the history of this country. And, uh, you know, we, I, we, we sometimes get away from it. The example here, um, you know, fasting for national deliverance has been practiced throughout history. They give the example of England's leaders calling national days of prayer and fasting at times of crisis. In 1588, the nation fasted when the Spanish Armada threatened England with invasion. Later, they fasted for God's help as Napoleon prepared to invade. 
Then again, during World War II, George VI called for a day of prayer and fasting while the Battle of Britain raged, asking God to stop the Nazis from invading. And on each occasion, God spared England from impending disaster. Other leaders of America in the Continental Congress and Abraham Lincoln also called for national days of prayer and fasting during calamitous times. I know that our, our uh, current president is, is a newer Christian, if you will. It would be amazing if he would call for a national day of prayer and fasting over our crisis at the southern border for restoration of families and marriages and for there to be an overall revival to sweep through this nation. But we don't have to wait for our president to call for that. In fact, we shouldn't be waiting at all. We should be praying and fasting for those things ourselves, corporately, but ourselves. So we can also fast for protection. We can fast for insight into God's end time plan. And lastly, number seven, fasting for intimacy with God, which is called the bridegroom fast. So the reason I'm sharing this with you is this is not about if you have, you know, physical limitations or, you know, health issues where you can't fast. There's no condemnation in not fasting. But if you feel the tug at your heart while you're listening to me share about this, I want you to be encouraged and follow that leading and fast. That's what I'm planning on doing. It's the new year. It's a great time to be fasting and to kind of just reset those desires and the, and the norms that we're following. And I hope that you'll join me in doing that. If you feel so led, obviously pray about it, you know, and, and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. But we're in a time, uh, you know, we, we keep talking about the crisis at the southern border, but we have crises all over in our communities, in our little towns and villages, and also up to the city level all over. And people are hurting and they want answers. And many of them, since they haven't been exposed to Christianity and to Jesus Christ, they truly don't know what the answer is. And a lot of people are looking to government and thinking, well, Congress isn't doing anything. If they would just do something, a lot of these problems would be fixed. But you and I both know that's not the case. Congress isn't fixing anything. They can't fix themselves. They can't even figure out how to work amongst themselves without sexually harassing each other and paying each other off out of a slush fund. And I know they're not all doing that. They're not all guilty. But I noticed there's not many of them calling for uh, exposing who's on that list and who's been paid and who's been doing the paying. You notice that? So we can, we don't, we don't have to go through these people. They're not our source. We can fast and pray and God will open up the windows of heaven and pour a blessing out on us that we will be unable to receive. I'm ready. When we get back, we'll have Phil Kirpin of American Commitment right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Keep it here. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You can't squeeze more into three days, and we will, in Washington, D.C. on our spiritual heritage tour in June and in September. We're going to the Capitol, Library of Congress, the Supreme Court, Lincoln Memorial, the Korean and Vietnam Memorials, the Iwo Jima Memorial, the Arlington National Cemetery, the White House, that's outside, Jefferson Memorial, and the National Archives, and... We're going to Mount Vernon on that Saturday of our tour. So, so much to see, so much to do, and it includes lectures and talks from Stephen McDowell, who will be our historian along the way. For more information on these June or September spiritual heritage tours and the separate tour to Williamsburg, Jamestown, and Yorktown, for all the information on this, go to spiritualheritagetours.com. That's spiritual 
heritagetours.com. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with the Legacy Moment. Our oldest son, Brian, is a very gifted preacher, and God is using him in a wonderful way. But early in his ministry, he went through a bit of a challenge. He's given me permission to share this. He was getting many invitations to go and speak in various places, and it was occupying a lot of his time. He called me and said, Dad, what do you say yes to and what do you say no to? I said to him, son, there's not an easy answer for that, but I've learned I need to go to the things that God has called me to do. Look at the assignments he's placed before you. Let that be the editing board for your choices and decisions. Now let's rewind about 2,000 years. It was brought to the attention of the church leaders, the apostles, that there was a serious need there in the church. People needed to be served and fed. Listen to Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. See, they didn't diminish the need. They realized that there were other people whom God would call to meet that need. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. Pay close attention to this. If you're feeling pulled by the demands of others, get away and pray and ask, Lord, what, what is my calling? What is my assignment? What is it you want me to do? And then by his grace, operate from that calling. This will give you incredible freedom to say yes to the right things. More information about the ministry of Crawford Loritz can be found online at livingalegacy.org. Join Crawford tomorrow for another Legacy Moment. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. program. Thank you for being with us. Um, I am so happy to have our next guest on the program. Um, We often chat here on the show and I read a lot of what he puts out through the various mechanisms where he writes and all of that. And it's just always a pleasure to have uh, Phil join us on the program. It's Phil Kirpin. He's the president of American Commitment. Phil, thanks for coming on today. Okay, my pleasure. Um, I got one of my kids yelling in the background now. So. I hear that. I didn't know you had That's smalls. <laughs> my That's kids are my, bigger, uh, so. My three-year-old, uh, I don't know, he came in from playing in the yard with some of the older ones, and, uh, yeah, I don't really know what he's upset about. So he's I got something going that. on. Mm, that's okay. This is This is the real, it's live radio in the real world, and I'm a mom, and I used to do all of my interviews. There'd always be a car, a kid in the car, like the first, I don't know, 2,000 interviews I've ever done, I'd say maybe 80% of them, there was a kid somewhere nearby or in the car. But my kids were never three when I was doing this. So they would usually be pretty quiet, but they would tap me and tap their watch like, are you done? So I, I, I sympathize with you. <laughs> yeah, I've done that before with my older son in the car where he's got like, he's got like a video game and I keep telling him to turn it down. He keeps turning it up. So I, I, I've, had, I've had that experience as well. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, let's, let's talk about these price controls. Um, you have this article, and it's don't import foreign price controls, break them. First, explain to us, like, what, what are we concerned about here? What's going on? Well, you know, we have a situation right now 
um, where we're paying much, much higher costs for prescription drugs in the United States than any other country in the world. And, you know, it's one thing for poor countries to be paying much less. It kind of makes sense. You're not going to try to charge full price to, you know, poor people in uh, poor countries. But it's another thing entirely that very rich countries, Europe, Japan, and so forth, are paying, you know, pennies on the dollar for prescription drugs of what we pay. And most people think that's extraordinarily unfair. And, you know, that's one of the things that President Trump talked about a lot on the campaign trail, the big applause line. He said he was going to stop, uh, you know, us from getting ripped off where, you know, we're basically we're paying these massively higher uh, pharmaceutical prices compared to the whole rest of the world. Uh, and it really is a very real problem, but it's also a much harder problem to solve than you might think because if we just slash prices in the U.S., say government comes in and says we're going to pay, you know, international prices, we're going to slash prices, on prescription drugs, just you know, sort of by government mandate or government regulation or dictate. Uh, the problem is that you know it's very expensive to do the research and development to, to find your drug. It costs billions and billions of dollars. On average, uh, it costs about three billion dollars to bring a new drug to market because of all the failures. And you know, the, the pharmaceutical industry spends over 150 billion dollars a year on research and development now. They don't do that out of the kindness of their hearts, although there are a lot of wonderful, kind-hearted people who work in on medical research. They, they do it because they're able to earn a return on that capital. They're able to uh, earn a return on investment for their, for their investors, their shareholders. Um, and that means they've got to have some place in the world where they can get a market-based return. And if all the other countries have price control, the only place they can do that is the United States. And that's one reason that, that our prices are so high, is you, know, you can't really get a return on capital anywhere else in the world. But if we follow other countries and have government limit prices, uh, you're going to get a lot less uh, research and development. You're not going to get new cures because there's not going to be a way to earn a return on investment of all the billions of dollars that it takes uh, to get them. And so to bring down prices in the U.S. Uh, without undermining research and development, we really need to raise prices in the rest of the world. We need to break their price control regimes and have them pay more so they cover, you know, some of the cost of capital and the return on investment. Uh, and, you know, that's been a major focus of trade policy in this administration, and they've made some progress in the new USMCA. There's some pharmaceutical-related provisions that are very encouraging, and then they're trying to work on that and a lot of these other uh, trade deals that they've got on the table. But at the same time, uh, and I think really sort of undercutting that whole effort, they've now got a proposal for a demonstration project in Medicare they would index prices for Medicare Part B drugs, which are physician-administered drugs, uh, to an index based on international prices, which are government-set price control prices. And I think if we do that, even on a demonstration basis, then, you know, we sit down for a trade negotiation. We say, you've got to loosen your price controls and cover more of the cost of research and development. Other countries are going to sort of laugh in our face and say, well, you know, if the way we do it is so bad, why would you link your prices to ours and uh, adopt international reference pricing. So I think that this uh, HHS proposal uh, would really undermine what they're trying to accomplish on the trade front, which is the only real solution to this problem of the rest of the world free riding on, uh, you know, the, the huge investments that we're making in research and development and that we're paying for in these high prices in the U.S. Um, we really need to get the other rich countries to let their prices rise uh, rather than just following them uh, down the path of price controls because, you know, we'll, we'll never know what we would miss out on. Um, you know, if we undermine the incentives to research and development, we'll not, we won't know what cures, what treatments uh, would have existed if we didn't lose that incentive. And in the, in, the other, in the other direction, 
if we actually got the other rich countries to eliminate their government price control regimes, uh, there's a study out now that, it, that we would get 10 to 13 new drugs, additional drugs per year as a consequence of that because of the R&D incentive that would be created. And so, you know, in a decade, that's over 100 new drugs. Who knows what they might be? And so this is a really important uh, trade priority that we really agree with the Trump administration on, but we're, we're very concerned um, that this latest effort to sort of import foreign price controls into Medicare would totally undercut that and uh, kind of a shortcut to try to get rid of the price disparity, but one that would have a really uh, negative consequence. Okay, so I totally I'm on board with what you're discussing, especially the new drugs. And this kind of hits home for our family because we have one of our kids who's recently diagnosed with, you know, it's a it's a lifelong illness that he's going to be dealing with. And one of the things we've noticed is there's a plethora of options that have come out since the last time this family diagnosis was this this medical diagnosis was had in our family. So in the intervening 20 years, we've seen this amazing outgrowth of different treatments that really reduce you. To, you don't have to take eight pills a day and you're, you can really live a much more normal life, but it's also very expensive. We're talking like, like $20,000 per treatment and you have to have these once every six to eight weeks. And so the drug makers have been able to work together with, you know, insurance and reduce the cost of that. But when they first tell you that over the phone, the sticker shock is like, $20,000 every six weeks. You got to be kidding me. Like, you, you know, we have insurance. Why would we pay that much? Well, we're not going to pay that much. Well, it is, it is amazing. I mean, honestly, I just, I, I, I just sat here. I was sitting right here in this chair thinking, did he just say what I think he said? I said, what did you say? And he said, it is, it's 20,000, but this is what we do. And he explained about a program we could enroll into that would drastically cut the cost of that. So I, I think, we're all on board. I think there's probably just thousands of people in this listening audience who are in a similar predicament where they either are waiting on some new drug to improve the the living, just the, the living, everyday living, or they're experiencing the extraordinary cost that we pay as Americans. But how do you get like, how do you get this done? Because right now we have, we, we can't even decide that we want to seal off our southern border. Congress is now in the control of the Democrats and a Republican president who wants to do something common sense like this. You would think everyone would just say, you know what? We hate you still, but this is something good to do. But I don't see Democrats supporting any move like this because it would have to come from Congress, correct? Well, you know, a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the efforts on trade you know, they're really in the executive branch. The U.S. Trade Representative uh, negotiates all of that. The president negotiates. And where it comes to Congress is when you actually have a completed deal. And so, you know, that's where we are right now on the USMCA, the NAFTA success with the negotiations done. It is in front of Congress. Democrats are certainly going to play games with it. As I mentioned, it does have some very positive provisions with respect to pharmaceuticals, especially biotech drugs. Uh, Canada and Mexico extended their protections for those significantly, which is a big positive in terms of, you know, spreading that cost internationally. Um, but, yeah, we're going to see if they can actually get that through Congress. And, of course, there are all the other issues that are in that trade agreement that uh, you know, there are a lot of moving pieces. And, you know, as sort of the administration moves forward negotiating with other countries or with Europe as a bloc, however they end up doing it, you know, the administration can take it only so far as getting an agreement. At some point, they have to send it up for a vote, and, uh, you know, that's where it gets even more challenging. I mean, not to mention, I mean, even negotiating, you know how difficult it is to negotiate with a country and convince them that they should let prescription drug prices increase in their country? Think about the politics of that on the other side of the table. That's a very tough thing to get done. You've got to sort of fit that in with all the other things you're negotiating and try to get them there. 
Um, but it has been a priority for the administration, and I think that's a very good priority for, for the whole world, really, because, you know, if we could get all of the rich countries paying more of a market-based price, we would get a lot more medical innovation, a lot more drugs developed. The U.S. wouldn't have to carry the whole cost of that, which would be good for us, but uh, the increase in the development of new cures and treatments would be good for the entire world, including the countries that we're asking to let their prices rise. And so, you know, I, I think that, you know, that's kind of the key argument. But, yeah, uh, we've got to persuade other countries to do it, which is very hard. And then at some point you do need to send, send these trade agreements up for votes in Congress. So it's, there are a lot of choke points that make it difficult, which is why the administration probably might think, uh, some in the administration might think, how about the shortcut of we'll just adopt international prices here instead of trying to... Um, you know, raise their prices abroad uh, as well. And I think that that's, uh, as we've said, that that's a pretty dangerous path to go down. Um, and so I yeah, hope that, the, that this, this demonstration proposal uh, will be withdrawn. But we'll have to see. They just closed the comment period on it a couple of weeks ago. So we'll, we'll see what the next move is. So we're talking about a lot of these countries, while they're developed nations, they're still operating off the socialist model. So increasing prices goes against the very heart of what they're doing. They're, they're trying to keep everything cheap because it's, you know, everybody, every man gets the same donkey, you know, little, little bowl of gelfish, uh, uh, you know, goldfish and cup of jello. Their, their idea is everybody gets the same thing. Everybody partakes in the same health care. And well, I think if we adopt the price I think controls. It's even less, I think they think it's less ideological than that. I think it's just, hey, they think, hey, if, if the U.S. is going to keep bearing the cost of all of this R&D through high prices, then why don't we just um, have super low prices in Europe and Japan and elsewhere, and we'll just free ride off what the Americans are paying for? I mean, let's say, you know, I think their mentality is let's do it because we can. But what about the idea of them not having access because they're just not paying enough? It's it's like well, you know, that's a tricky one. You know, the um, not under the current prime minister, but under the previous prime minister in India. Uh, there were a series of uh, cancer drugs in particular where they weren't willing to pay a price that the manufacturer would agree to, and the, you know, the, the manufacturers were willing to go pretty low, but not where the Indian government wanted them to. And the government just issued what are called compulsory licenses. They basically stole their patents, and they told you know, uh, domestic companies to just steal the patents of major international drug companies and make the drugs themselves. And so governments always have the, the ability or the threat or the implied threat that they'll just seize the uh, intellectual property and seize the patents of companies that don't sell at the prices they like. And, you know, that, that threat or implied threat is enough to get most companies uh, to, to say yes to, uh, you know, very low prices internationally because they know that, you know, as long as they're making a return on their R&D in the U.S. market, whatever little extra they make abroad is, is worth it even at low prices. And that's kind of how the markets develop. Okay, so... Help me out here, because I, I can't be the only one who's listening to you say that and wonder. So they have all of our intellectual property? Well, <laughs> like, how did they get that? The main example where they just steal it. I mean, you know, it, it's actually, unfortunately, um, as, a, as a practical matter, especially for traditional drugs, it's much harder for biotech drugs. But for traditional drugs, you know, once somebody has spent the billions of dollars developing it, it's pretty easy to knock it off. It doesn't really cost anything. That's why once patent protection expires and generics come on board, uh, you know, the price collapses to nothing, you get tons of competition. And that's great when the patent life is up, but when you have a country that's just going to say, hey, we're not going to respect the patent if you don't give us the price we want, we'll just basically steal it. Um, you know, there, there's not really, there, there's not really, in most cases, there's not really a technical way to protect that property. There's only the legal way of enforcing the patent because it's pretty easy to, uh, 
you know, to copy the drug once it's been developed. Uh, for, for traditional small molecule drugs, it's a little bit harder for, for biotech drugs. But even there, uh, you know, the, the legal protection is the most important thing that protects the property, right? It's not, uh, you know, you could reverse engineer anything. It's funny that you say that because this is the same kind of behavior we see from China on our technology side with the intellectual property. They just get the Definitely. phone, reverse engineer yep. it, and sell it in, in Asia. They're, they're not concerned at all about selling the knockoffs in America or you know, well, Germany. You know, there, is also, there is also a major counterfeiting issue with respect to pharmaceuticals. It's not just the threat that foreign governments might uh, you know, issue sort of a license to steal, uh, as we saw with some of those Indian cancer drugs, but there also are a lot of counterfeit, just straight-up counterfeit drugs that are, that are sold internationally. And so I always tell people who say, you know, I like the, these prices abroad look so cheap, I'm just going to buy, you know, my drugs from a uh, Canadian or Mexican pharmacy and get them over the Internet or what have you. Um, it's very dangerous because you might get a counterfeit. You might get something poisonous. You know, it's a, you know, a fake iPhone is not going to kill you, mm. uh, but a fake drug might. So that, that's a dangerous uh, strategy that some people have gone for. It's almost like going to, like, some third world, you know, like think banana stand or something fruit stand and getting fruit from there and expecting it to be washed and FDA inspected. And it's similar only with the drugs. It really could be laced with something that could kill you or just made out of nothing. And you're taking it. Oh, thinking you just don't know. You just yeah. Don't yeah. 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 There's no telling, you know, but, you know, there, there are some proposals in Congress to say, well, you know, we can safely do reimportation from abroad. We'll do it with safety inspections, we'll bring the drugs back in as a way to get foreign price control prices into the U.S. So, you know, that has the same downside as adopting price controls directly, which is you're, you know, you're getting rid of the ability to earn a return on capital on all that R&D in the one market where, where companies really can. And so you undermine the research incentives uh, with indirect price controls the same way you would with direct price controls. I just think, you know, if we're going to try to bring down prices in the U.S. and have it not affect the incentives to do research and development and find new cures. Um, we've got to be raising prices in the rest of the world at the same time, and we should be. And so, you know, I think that's an important uh, trade priority of the Trump administration, and, uh, you know, that's, we, we applaud them for that. And uh, what, what they're doing, proposing adopting foreign price controls, uh, yeah, I think undermines it. So I think they're hurting themselves with this HHS proposal. Well, I think we got a better grasp on it because you've joined the show today. Phil, thank you so much for uh, coming on and explaining this to us and for your work over at American Commitment. Thank you, Phil Kirpin. My pleasure. Have a good one. Okay, you too. Uh, we'll be back with more. Your calls, 866-963-2037, right after this. Part of growing in Christ is learning how to encourage others. In doing so, you always gain strength for your own journey. It's kind of like you can't pray for someone in earnest and remain angry at them. You may not like what they've done, but the presence of God has a way of sifting the wrath right out of you. You can't encourage someone else in your walk and remain numb to the encouraging words yourself. As you encourage others, you begin to see that all things are possible in Christ Jesus. Your obstacles become visibly obtainable. 
In this world of self-centeredness and all about me, be extraordinary. Don't be the norm. Each day, stop and take a me poll to determine just where you are in your walk with the Lord. Encourage your brother or sister in the Lord in that area and watch God do some amazing things in your life. Your deliverance is resting in the power of your tongue. With a heart for the Urban Family, I'm today's Urban Woman, Tony Johnson. Connect with us at UrbanFamilyTalk.com. There are many ways you can listen to the shows of Urban Family Talk. One of those ways is through our very own app. Whether you have an iPhone or an Android, just go to the App Store and search for Urban Family Talk. You'll have immediate access to 24-hour programming as well as the podcast for each show. You'll be able to tune in no matter where you are. Speaking of tuning in, we have our own channel on another radio app called TuneIn. Cool, right? Urban Family Talk is everywhere. Just download the app and take us wherever you go. We want America to be a godly nation. The Awakening with Bishop E.W. Jackson. It's never been an issue of race. It's always been an issue of the human heart. A passion to see America rise and shine like a city that's set upon a hill. The problem in America has always been sin. Don't miss Bishop E.W. Jackson and The Awakening. Weekday mornings at 9 central on Urban Family Talk. Donald Trump's America. President Trump's strategy of declaring a national emergency has been tried before in a standoff over steel, not a wall. President Harry Truman declared an emergency in 1952 during the Korean War in an effort to take control of the steel industry before a massive worker strike. On the eve of the strike, President Truman addressed Americans. My fellow Americans, tonight our country faces a grave danger. We are faced by the possibility that at midnight tonight, the steel industry will be shut down. This must not happen. That sparked the landmark case Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company versus Sawyer, in which the U.S. Supreme Court ruled Truman did not have the power to seize the steel industry. A lot has changed since then. The National Emergencies Act was passed in 1976, but it doesn't define what is or is not a national emergency. In Washington, Rachel Sutherland, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Understand again and remember that the Sheriff's Office is comprised of roughly 5,000 employees and roughly 3,000 deputies, almost exclusively made up of the most decorated and brave and unselfish individuals you will ever meet. I have served with many of these men and women during my law enforcement career and they are not self-serving. They have the community interest at their heart, as do I. And so, to the employees and deputies now under my command, I understand you have concerns about the transition period. I can only provide the immediate comfort of saying this, I am not here for any type of political grandiose or agenda. I'm here to serve. I'm here to provide you with the best leadership that I can provide, as well as with any type of expertise and training agendas and any other equipment elements that's been lacking here is coming your way. To the community stakeholders, those who in attendance, those that are watching, you have voted and expressed the rights to select your Broward County Sheriff. So I also understand that there may be some concerns there. And so to you, I say this, I have served you once before, oftentimes in the dark, away from the public light, simply doing my job to enforce the laws of this great state. 
I'm here to continue that mission under the capacity of sheriff by ensuring you and our deputies have the leadership that they deserve. Thank you very much. Uh, hey, welcome back to American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Ride here, and we're so glad to have you with us. Do call in and weigh in on uh, any of the topics we've covered so far today. We 866-963-2037. We have call lines open. 866-963-2037. So what we've had is this, uh, this audio that you just heard. It was Gregory Tony. He's the new Broward County Sheriff. He's a formal Coral Springs police sergeant, and he's the president of an active shooter response training company. One more time with that last bit. This man, Gregory Tony, who has just been appointed by, uh, you know, the newly elected governor of the state of Florida, uh, Governor DeSantis, Gregory Tony is now the Broward County Sheriff replacing Sheriff Israel, who has come under fire for not only the the actual events of the day, but his comments and really lack of uh, accountability after the Parkland shooting. And it is overdue. He should have been gotten rid of the very, like the very same week that the Parkland shooting occurred. The minute the dust settled, Sheriff uh, Israel should have been gone. I don't think they really are done cleaning house. I would hope that Gregory Tony would come in and make appropriate changes where needed. Uh, we didn't listen to his entire statement. He did say early on that people think that Broward County is is just rife with corruption and that there are no good people there. And he begged to differ with that. He said there are five over 5,000 people working for the Broward County Sheriff's Department and that they, by and large, are excellent people and they don't deserve to be tarred and feathered with the same reputation that Sheriff Israel has kind of brought to that to that environment. And so we're hoping, I, I'm certainly hoping, and I'm, I'm not a resident of Florida, but we're there often, my family and I, and I just think it's horrifying, the loss of life there where you had officers on the scene who could have stopped the carnage and they just, they stayed outside, they were cowards. And there's, there's nothing wrong with being a coward. I'll repeat, no shame in being a coward. Just don't go into law enforcement. Don't run around in a position where you need to run towards the gunfire, you need to run towards the, the, the burning building or the screams. When you hear distress, your instinct is to run in the other direction and preserve your own life. Be that person. Just don't be that person and put yourself in a position where you're supposed to be another person. It's, it's two distinctly different kinds of people. And we've talked about it here on the show before. It's the sheepdog and the sheep. And there is nothing wrong with being the sheep. You just don't masquerade as a sheepdog so you can get paid and then flake out when it's your opportunity to actually make a difference, which is what we saw with those officers. And Sheriff Israel, really, with his refusal to take responsibility for what happened, is, it's kind of legendary. Like, I think, historically speaking, 20, 30 years from now, we'll see people kind of saying, oh, you're going to Sheriff Israel that? Come on. <laughs> so here's some more information about uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's pick. Uh, he, he made an announcement that he's suspending and battled Sheriff, Broward County Sheriff Scott Israel. And he had this news conference. It was outside of BSO headquarters in Fort Lauderdale. He was joined by Andrew Pollack, Max Shader, Ryan Petty, and other parents who've been critical of Israel in the wake of the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. DeSantis actually went so far as to say that the massacre, massacre might never have happened had Broward had better leadership in the sheriff's department. And that's something because, you know, what, what he's saying is training wise, they could have had someone there uh, who would have done a great job 
And if that had happened, then there, there would be fewer loss of life. There might have even been no loss of life because they would have gotten there, gone straight in and done a fantastic job of assessing the situation and taking it over. Now, Coral Springs was actually praised for their response to Parkland. Coral Springs, where this new gentleman, uh, the newly appointed Broward Sheriff, Gregory Tony, uh, Coral Springs was actually praised for their response to the Parkland massacre. So they've got their head screwed on straight. And if he was working there among those guys, he's gotten some training that maybe the Broward County guys haven't gotten. And it's wonderful to cross-pollinate that information. Bring, you bring in new leadership, someone with a completely different perspective. That person comes in, and it's not an immediate cleaning house. I'm not expecting him to clean house immediately. He has to assess the lay of the land. But he's going to be able to sniff out the, the sheep masquerading as sheepdogs it's my hope and prayer that he'll be able to sniff them out pretty quick. And in doing so, getting this wonderful, you know, it's a sheriff's department. These people are saving lives. They're going out and they're doing things that we regular folk, we don't want to do because we're not, we're not law enforcement. We want those people to have good leadership and to have people in charge who are going to not only train them properly and have the right operational attitude for the entire sheriff's department, but also to have them be really um, finally attuned to the fact that they need to reset their reputation. Right now they have a, a, their reputations in the toilet. They want to reset that. They want to get the confidence and trust of the public back. And the only way to do that is with someone new to come in and um, take it over and reset things and get rid of the bad guys if there are any left, which you would assume there may be some still there. So continuing on with... Uh, this, this, we still have the same, we have a couple different things I want to get to. Um, there's this story that's out of Missouri, and this is important for us Christians because it goes right to the heart of how we live. We've talked about the Freedom From Religion Foundation, and they, they never stop. Their main thing is erasing religion from public life, but the way they do it is really sneaky and crafty and devilish. They know that they don't have enough money or resources or manpower to fight these fights all over the country. So what they do is they just send a letter. I'm waving paper. Can you hear that? They send a threat on a very official looking letterhead that says that your town will be bogged down with lawsuits. We're going to sue you guys out of, out of existence if you don't remove that cross. So the cross in question this time, it's usually a symbol of a cross that they hate the most, but any symbol of, of Christianity in public. And this is in Ozark in Christian County. Is that ironic? The name of the county in Missouri is Christian County. The name of the city is Ozark. They have less than 20,000 people living there, so this is not a fancy town. It's not expensive. They don't have a ton of money on lawyers and all that stuff. The Freedom From Fun people sent this letter to Ozark, and they targeted this giant blue cross that's part of the city's annual Christmas lights in Finley River Park. Now, on the story, I mean, this is a big, this is a big cross. It's big, it's lit up around the edges, and it's every year they put it up as a part of their Christmas display. So they got little Santas down at the bottom who are lit up. You know, they got um, what look like candlesticks and other little things, a Christmas tree made out of string lights. You know, it's, it's super cute. Uh, Small Town America comes right to you. Freedom from Funds legal director, Rebecca Markert, wrote that the illuminated cross is not a permissible city holiday decoration, pointing to a federal court case that found a cross unconstitutional as a part of a city display, 
because a cross is not a common Christmas symbol, but a Christian one. Now that's one court case, right? Here's the other thing. How dare she from California or Las Vegas, Nevada, or wherever they're out of, tell this Ozark town what they can and can't have. If everybody in the town is fine with it, what right does she have? I think they would have prevailed in court in Missouri, but she didn't need to go to court, Re Rebecca Markert, because she knew all I got to do is send this little small town a letter telling them, you, you guys are going to go down. You're going down and they'll cave. So the city made an announcement saying they're going to take the cross down because it's a religious symbol on public property and they don't have money to win a lawsuit. After the announcement, the mayor received hundreds of phone calls, which in a town of 20,000 is pretty significant. He says, Mayor Rick Gardner says, everybody wants it up. He actually reported that back to the Springfield News Leader. He said, one lady called in crying. This is a part of Ozark. This is Christian County for Pete's sake. So the city officials quickly reissued a statement saying that the cross would remain until the issue was resolved to the interest of all parties. So last week, the city announced that they're going to move the cross to the south side of the park on land owned by Christian County A&M Society. Christian County's A&M Society owns land that is in the park. So all they're doing is they're just basically moving the cross across the highway. In striving to balance the court of law with the court of public opinion, we have identified a solution that will relocate the cross from its current location. Freedom from religion slash fun has already said that this is, you know, what they wanted. They wanted them to remove it from public property to private land. So they're claiming this as a victory. I don't think it's a victory for either side because, first of all, the town should have told FFRF, you know, you, you know what you can do with your letters. You got something to say, bring it on down here. We'll crowdfund our defense. We're, we're not caving to you. We'll do what we want. It's our town. And you stay in your own town. I feel like that's what they should have done. They didn't. They're still winning because uh, one of the people who lives in Ozark said that the visibility factor from the south side, or I can't say south. They didn't tell me what side of the highway it was, but across from where it was, it actually has more visibility for the public than it did in its previous location. So the residents are counting it a win. I don't know if I'm, I would call it a straight up win. Of course, the cross is still up. But they had to expend their valuable time and energy and possibly money to move the cross. It's, it's big. I mean, it's really large. And it also represents this idea that these freedom from religion people can just keep calling and writing and, and harassing towns and cities across this country and browbeating people into giving in. I, I praise God that these people down in the Ozark city, the, this little city, that they were so firm in their resolve not to have it taken down and they are, if you, if you ask me, they're reasonable people. They're actually super nice, if you ask me, because I just don't see any situation where if I was the mayor that I wouldn't have dug my heels in and said, so you want to do this? We're going to set up a crowdfunding and we're just going we, to fight you until the cows come home because this is our town and you're not telling us what to do. Uh, in any case, I'm glad the cross is still up. We have a number of them in Missouri. If you, so if you're ever driving down Route 66 or you're taking Highway 70 and you pass through St. Louis on both sides, you'll find huge crosses that you can see from the highway. And some of them are just lit with up lights. And we have a whole series of billboards on most of the major highways going out into the county that uh, talk about Jesus being the only answer, 
uh, crisis pregnancy resource centers have their information up there. Abortion is sin. Abortion is murder. If you've never known Jesus, you know, dial this number. I mean, we've got it all going on here and, and this is, this is the heartland. Um, but I just thought it was interesting that that's what we had going on. And I tell you what, I'm, I'm concerned mainly because I'm, I, I'm just as against these freedom from fun people as anybody else who's a Christian and doesn't want to see their influence increase. I'm just concerned that they take every little, if they can get an inch, they consider it a victory and then they adjust all their little letters and that's all they do. They just sit in their office and write letters and try to bully people into doing what they want from where they are, where they're, they're never going to go to this town. They're never going to go there. The cross does not bother them in the least. It's just the idea that people are out having fun with religion and enjoying themselves that drives them crazy and they have to put a stop to it. Not cool. I just don't think we should be giving in to them. Uh, So I wanted to also give a little word of just just a caveat. We're seeing some uh, over at CNN. They're saying polls show the president's approval rating is in the tank and that he's the only one who's getting... Um, like he's the only one who's getting blamed for the shutdown. Other polls show less, lesser known polls show that as the, the shutdown stretches on, yeah, the president's getting blamed for it because he said he'd take responsibility, but Congress is also getting blamed too. You know, they're down in Puerto Rico. Uh, all of the democratic congressional members are down in Puerto Rico on the beach wearing scandalous little bathing suits and partying. And working with the Puerto Rican government, they say they're doing, you know, helping with hurricane relief from last year when they were devastated. But they're not they're, they're not in Washington, D.C. The president is. He hasn't left. He missed his traditional Christmas down in Florida. And you, you guys know how I feel about Christmas. That was not cool that he had to stay in Washington, D.C. and not go do Christmas with Melania in the, in the normal way that they've grown accustomed to. That's not OK. But he did that because he's working for free. I I don't know if I should I remind everybody that the president doesn't take a salary. He's not taking one dollar. Well, I'm sorry. He takes one dollar in salary because he's he's required to take one dollar. Everything else gets donated back to the government. So. Uh, yeah, these Democrats, it ain't cool what they're doing. They're, they're in the wrong again. All right. There's the music. God bless you from the heartland. Uh, American Family Radio, Urban Family Talk. You're at home and we'll talk to you again tomorrow.